The fact is that although we can't, to a large degree, control what happens to us, we can control how we respond. And so our personality or mindset has an outsized influence on the way our lives will reveal themselves at any age or any stage. The idea is that you can change your personality at any age and choose a personality that you want, choose a personality that will give you a better chance of being happy and productive and living healthy. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. This is the podcast to learn about actionable changes to your diet and your lifestyle that can lead to health benefits. For the second part of our Reversing Aging series, my guest is Dr. Daniel J. Leverton, a neuroscientist cognitive psychologist and best-selling author. He is founding dean of arts and humanities at the Minerva Schools at KGI in San Francisco and professor emeritus of psychology and neuroscience at McGill University. He's also the best-selling author of This Is Your Brain on Music, The World in Six Songs, The Organized Mind, which is a personal favorite, and a field guide to lies and statistics. Daniel is a thought leader in the field of aging and neuroscience. He has read thousands of research papers on the brain through the ages, and his new book draws on cutting-edge research from neuroscience and psychology to demonstrate the cognitive benefits whilst we get older. On today's show, we talk about a whole bunch of things, including beliefs surrounding the aging process and why it needs a rebrand, our assumptions about memory loss and focus on lifespan instead of health spam, how our decision-making skills actually improve as we age. And we also go into a bit of a tangent when we talk about different topics that afflict our patient population those underpinned by community struggles the psychological impact of childhood um, as well as our own personal patient anecdotes as well daniel was an absolute pleasure to interview and to cook for as well he's a bit of a foodie uh, as you'll as you'll see and remember you can check out the recipe that i made daniel on youtube the doctor's kitchen do subscribe to the newsletter. You'll get weekly newsletter um, recipes, um, plus lots of tips that are based around exactly what we were talking about, particularly toward the end of our discussion as well. I think you're going to really enjoy this uh, conversation and uh, uh, let's get to it. Dan, thank you so much for coming in. To the doctor's kitchen. Thank you for having me, doctor. It's absolute privilege to have you here. I'm going to be cooking you a Mexican dish. The reason why is because as I was reading your book, um, you talk a little bit about after you turned 60, you thought that your taste buds were sort of gradually diminishing. Yeah. And then you went to Mexico and you're like, actually, no, it's the food. <laughs> and you became a lover of Mexican food and spices and stuff like that. So I'm making you something 
in that vein we've got some sweet corn red onions some pinto beans we're hitting it with loads of different spices paprika espazote which is a new dried herb that i've never used before but um you were smelling it earlier and it's got those sort of rosemary tones to it which i think is brilliant um we're going to mix it all with some tomatillos warm up some of these uh, corn tortillas and we'll serve it all up together does that sound good I can't, I can't just, I, nobody is so thoughtful. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. No worries. This is what you should expect now. Whenever you do yeah, a podcast well, yes. or a talk or anything. Like Marianne, put this in my contract writer. <laughs> cool. So tell me about your trip so far and tell me about your incredible book, which I'm a massive fan of, obviously. Well, I started, um, I left home on January 4th to start talking about aging um, in the United States and Canada. And then I came over here um, just on Saturday to, to begin the conversation here. Really a conversation about, um, I, I'm hoping to push a societal conversation about what it means to be an older adult in our culture at this time. Yeah, because it, it strikes me as aging needs a bit of a rebrand. Um, it's been traditionally seen as, you know, not something you want to look forward to something that's associated with all the medical ailments that we're all too aware of. Um, loneliness, um, loss of connection with uh, family members and friends, loss, grief. It doesn't sound very attractive, does it, as a period of life to look forward to? It doesn't, but um, if, as I do, I'm a, I'm a developmental neuroscientist. I look at the whole lifespan, and when you do that, uh, you realize there are Every stage of life has something unpleasant about it. I mean, toddlerhood, you aren't toilet trained yet. You know, that's, in retrospect, unpleasant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and who wants to be 13 years old again? Yeah. And in the, in the, thir the classroom with other 13-year-olds? Yeah. yeah. I don't. I have not yet met a person who wants to go back to that stage of their schooling. So, um, yeah, there are, there are some unpleasant things about getting older, but they are... Um, overdone, as you say, it needs a rebranding because there's really a lot of um, hopeful things and positive things about aging. Older brains get better in many respects. Um, older emotions, people are better able to regulate their emotions when they're older. And, you know, when you look at society broadly writ, we have a long way to go in terms of combating various prejudices. The isms, uh, racism, sexism, uh, prejudice against uh, people from other countries or religions or cultures, LGBTQ plus community members. None of these are even close to being solved, but they're at least part of the national conversation. But the two lingering big sources of bigotry you know, just, just not liking a person for the way they are. Um, one of them is obesity. It's very difficult for obese people to be taken seriously in jobs. Uh, it's more difficult for them to get health care. Doctors, as you know, yeah. often just say, well, you have to lose weight. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Without giving them any kind of instruction on how to do it that will work. Uh, some doctors won't see them, as you probably know. And then and there's ageism. Now, I, I'm not a metabolic expert, so I can't speak to the obesity problem. But uh, as a neuroscientist, the ageism is 
largely unfounded. Yeah, yeah, because you 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 bring light to lots of the myths around uh, aging, the aging population about how they're cognitively slow, um, they're more stuck in their ways. Um, and I think it was fascinating to read actually about how a lot of those are completely unfounded, but they're still ingrained in a lot of what people think of the aging population themselves, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, we, we tend to hold a narrative that old age is a time of decline, that, that every other phase of life, you're adding some skills and abilities, yeah. or at least in middle age, you're adding to your financial stability. Uh, but right, uh, uh, many of us trying to. Uh, at some point, however, the, the story is you just start losing everything and you fall down this steep precipice and nothing gets better anymore. It's, as you said, it's aches and pains, it's infirmity, it's becoming incontinent. Um, but that's not really the reality for most people who have been following healthy lifestyle practices all along, or even those who adopt them later in life. Um, memory won't necessarily fail. Uh, Problem-solving skills get better. You mentioned depression. The peak age of happiness across 72 countries surveyed is 82. Yeah. <laughs> Which is astonishing. I think a lot of the listeners will, will hear that and be like, no way, that can't be true. But it's, and even I was very surprised to hear that. Tens well. of thousands of people reporting. Now, of course, like anything else, this is a, uh, a distribution, right? And there are tail, a mound-shaped distribution with tails. So some people are gonna be happiest at 100, some people are gonna be happiest at 30, and there, yeah, there are a bunch of 82-year-olds who are miserable, but you know, I'm talking about the statistical aggregate. Peak age of happiness, 82, and, and that's robust. I've heard you say um, in previous talks that now has never been the best time to age. Uh, as in like we're in a period of time now where if you're going to be old, it's, it's now because yes. actually, you know, there are lots of uh, movements. There's lots of different things that uh, advancements that we can utilize right now. We, we know a lot about how to age well. It is the best time to be older. Uh, and in fact, uh, it's, you know, demographically speaking, there are more people over 75 on the planet than at any time in history even not just in raw numbers because the population's growing, but as a percentage of the population. Um, and there are more people over 75 in the UK than under five. Yeah, which is astonishing, that yeah. is, wow. And soon it'll be more people over 75 than under 16. That's incredible. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily a good time to be aging, but we're, so we are living longer was the first point. We're also living healthier. Um, there's this movement in the UK and in North America and in Western Europe called unretirement. People retire, they realize they don't like it, uh, they still feel fit and capable, and they go back to work in some capacity. Sometimes it's volunteerism, sometimes it's working in their field or teaching. And do you think, because um, this is something that we've talked about on the podcast uh, a little bit before, that this new field, or it's not a new field, but it's definitely a, a revitalized interest in gerontology. And uh, the, the interest in aging, yes, healthy, but increasing lifespan at any cost. Do you think that's born out of a narcissistic endeavor by us humans just trying to, you know, capture everything and live the longest life? And, or do you think actually there is some altruism in that endeavor? Well, that's an interesting question. 
I don't have any insight into that. I'm, I'm just a simple country neuroscientist. I mean, <laughs> it's a question for a philosopher, I suppose. Uh, and, and of course, I'm a boomer. And so people have accused me of being boomer centric and you boomers, you just, you know, you just want to lengthen your own lives because you think you're more important than the rest yeah. of us. Uh, ignoring the fact that if boomers figure out how to lengthen our lives, it'll trickle down to everybody. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Is, it, is it altruistic or is it selfish? Um, yeah, I, I'm a scientist. So uh, the interest for me is in understanding the underlying mechanisms of how it all works. And if there's something that is um, broken, how can we fix it? So um, if somebody gets memory impairment, do we know enough about the brain to talk about things that can be done to restore their memory? Uh, that's what I mean by fixing it. And of course, as a GP, this is what you do. Somebody comes in, they've got an infection, you fix it, you repair it. It's, not about, it's neither about altruism nor selfishness. You're just trying to reset something to its normal state. So the philosophical question really becomes, is aging a normal state or is it effectively an evolutionary accident yes. that we haven't lit because of diseases uh, taking, picking off most of us historically at a young age and you know, one in five children dying before the age of five throughout most of history uh, old age is an evolutionary anomaly, and so the fact that we die from a variety of things, is that just because evolution hasn't had enough time to act on it? Uh, and if so, how would it do that? Um, is it a process that we can use medical science to ameliorate? And I suppose in that, when you put it in that context, it sounds very clear-cut. Uh, I think when you're faced with a disease diagnosis our, our aim as a collective uh healthcare professionals or scientists is to try and find out um the cures and and the treatments um there is a little bit in the uh, latter stage of the book and i love the symmetry of the book by the way of how you've gone into you know, the developing brain um the uh, current state of play with what the things that you can do now to improve your chances of successful aging uh, and then the future um, and there's a particular part in the future bit where you talk about neurostimulants uh, and different advances that might be accessible to some people and less accessible to others where do you stand on that because it, it was very well balanced to your opinion and I really enjoyed reading that section well I, I try to keep politics out of the book uh, because science should be apolitical uh, scientists are often called upon, as you know, by public policymakers to comment. Uh, and I believe that we sh have an obligation as scientists to present the information uh, without uh, taking sides in what are public policy debates. Now, I'm framing it all this way because the question about the uneven distribution of wealth and resources across the world is a political question. If, in, in that, if it weren't for uh, international tensions and boundaries and things of that nature, everybody would have uh, clean drinking water and toilets and access to medicine, uh, but they don't. So, um, my I, I raise 
the question of if we've got cognitive enhancing drugs that make some people smarter, and we do, uh, or if not smarter, uh, allow them to function on less sleep without any impairment. Um, or, you know, looking towards the future, you know, it's not un unreasonable to imagine there might be drugs that, that really do add IQ points and allow you to work harder and longer and, and improve your memory and uh, processing speed. Um, so the ethical question to have and I don't take sides, but you know, uh, is it fair for people who are already in wealthy countries and have a lot of advantages to have access to these while people who are um, living in poverty or you know, just remotely and don't have access to not have them? And then just to raise the stakes, what if there is a doctor who's on the verge of curing cancer or somebody in a public policy negotiation, two countries, two heads of countries negotiating, mm -hmm. and one of them is representing third world countries. Yeah. And this poor person has had a history of bad diet and bad medical care, him or herself, because of where they grew up. Mm -hmm. And they're being pitted in negotiation against somebody who's got all the advantages of wealth and good health care. Would it be moral for that third world person to take it? Yeah. Would it be immoral to deny them access to it in that situation where they could solve global poverty i mean it's these are the these are the boundaries of the discussion yeah absolutely and i think you know it's part of like you lovely described there um part of a much wider conversation about access to medicines in general um aging as we go into this new dimension is it's just going to become part of you know access to cancer medications and access to hiv uh, care uh, and a whole bunch of other fields as well I'm going to pause there for a second because I want to bring you back to this uh, recipe that I've just made for you. I hope you're going to like it. Um, just to recap, we've gone in with some red onions, some sweet corn, um, some of these beautiful pinto beans that I'm a big fan of. Uh, added some tomatillo as well as the espazote uh, herbs and the paprika. So it's got a bit of spice there. Mellowing it with a bit of coriander or cilantro, as you guys call it. Um, some avocado and a little bit of chili. Are you all right with chili? I should have asked you before. Well, I put it depends it on how spicy it is. It's not that spicy. Then I'm fine. And I haven't added the membrane or the uh, seeds. So Perfect. we'll get you to try this. That looks delicious. Uh, I, hope, I hope it tastes delicious as well. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, Marianne will know uh, we cook for everyone here. So we'll have a little break. Um, we'll have a little bite to eat and then we'll carry on. <laughs> I really like this. this you is, like it? This is the kind of thing that I look for at home. Oh, good. And, and it's hard to find. Good. Well, I'm glad. It's, it's light. Uh huh. It's flavorful. Um, a big problem, of course, with industrial restaurant kitchens is blandness. Yeah. Uh, they taste like fresh ingredients that you you tastes like you chose the ingredients based on what looked good in the yeah. store not yeah. a preconception yeah yeah well i'm i'm glad <laughs> all righty nice head of hair thank you very much and when time comes will you take propicia uh you know i probably won't actually i think i'm gonna try and age gracefully as much as I can um, my lineage is Punjabi Sikh uh, and so you you must have come I mean Canada's like the second 
largest population outside India. Well, and I, I went of... to the Sikh temple in Delhi. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, wow. Was when was that? Uh, I was there in August of 2018 to oh, meet yeah? the Dalai Lama. Oh, And I took an extra couple of days and we found a Sikh guide to take us. Brilliant. And it was really wonderful. So you're well aware that our hair is, you know, a symbol of mm. our uh, sort of commitment. Um, we're growing the hair. It's one of the five Ks. Um, and my... Both my, my father and my grandfather, who passed away a few years ago now, had good, strong hair. Um, so I think well, I've, sure, I've just you're, been blessed you're, with you're, good genes. Gen- <laughs> hundreds of generations selecting for that quality. Yeah, yeah. You don't have it, you don't get made it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got good hair as well. Well, I had to start taking um, Finasteride. Okay. Uh, I don't know what the brand name is. But... Uh, Finaster- well, we don't use brand names here in the NHS. Oh, we we tend to know use Finasteride. Generics, yeah. I had to start taking it a couple of years ago for um, BPH. Okay. So, uh, I, already, I mean, my hair hasn't changed, but yeah. it might have otherwise. Yeah, or it might. Yeah, exactly. Prophylactic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I use prophylactics. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I don't know how I'm going to conduct this interview without laughing the whole way through it. No, it's great though, because one of the things that you talk about in your book is to keep laughing. And uh, I can tell you, you're, you're, you're doing exactly what you preach. So oh, thank good. you. Good. As are you. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Well, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed your lunch. Very much. Good, good. I'll give you the recipe. Don't worry. You can make that at home, I'm sure. Um, so... I wanted to ask you, I've done a little spider diagram here of the different sections. So we've got the developing brain, which is the first bit. The second bit was your life's choice and the, and the third being the future. And I love that sort of flow. You're really taking on a journey through your book um, because at first it seems like quite intimidating read, like 400 pages, but actually it's, it's an effortless read because it's just so engaging and captivating. So really, really like big fan of it and your previous books as well. Um, I wanted to ask you about why different personalities age better than others and how that comes into the conversation around healthy aging. Because I, 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 it, was, it was quite new to me. It's a, it's a rather new uh, way of thinking about the lifespan. Um, of course, the, the three foundations on which our, uh, our lives take shape are genes uh, and then uh, the environment, and the environment has, and it's, it's no no longer in science anyway. Do we talk about nature versus nurture, meaning genes versus environment? They're two inextricably linked. One influences the other, uh, they, but they both influence one another. The, you, you know, uh, your genes influence the kinds of things you may do in your life, but the things you do have a backward effect on the genes, the gene expression. Uh, can be changed. Your, gen- your genes can be rewritten by experience. So um, within the environment, you've got two components, which are the culture in which you're raised and the values of your family and community and society. And then you've got the uh, odd things that happen to you, chance, random things, opportunity. And um, the, uh, the fact is that although we can't, to a large degree, control what happens to us, we can control how we respond. And so our personality or mindset has an outsized influence on the way our lives will reveal themselves at any age or any stage. So uh, the idea is that you can change your personality at any age, 
and choose a personality that you want, choose a personality that will give you a better chance of, of, of being happy and productive and living healthy. Yeah, because you, you talk a bit about um, conscientiousness uh, at the start and the end um, and gratitude, which I find fascinating. So a bit of context, I, I've been doing gratitude for a number of years now. It's part of your cultural tradition. Absolutely, yeah. I think um, you, you want to go into that a bit? We can do, yeah. yeah. Please. So the, the act of selflessness um, or there's a context called seva, which is basically giving to others and different religions there are i mean i'm not practicing sikh and and i'm definitely not a scholar but in different religions there always seems to be this um theme throughout them of service to others in islam i think you're given a proportion of your income away in sikhism uh, we deliver food to uh, anyone who comes into the temple as part of seva you will be either someone who provides the food, cooks the food, serves the food. I've done all those different roles and I think it's great. It's a wonderful way of cultivating gratitude for the very simple thing of eating. A lot of people don't have. I attended a Sikh meal. Oh, did you? The, nice. The, the Langa. temple in New Delhi, the, 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 the main Sikh temple. Uh-huh. It was really wonderful. The food's incredible, right? Well, that and the people too. <laughs> yeah. They're very warm uh, and interested people. Yeah, exactly. And so this this concept of gratitude has always um, been there throughout my sort of like upbringing. Um, I was cherished to be born and, and raised with a, those sort of um, those sort of background uh, influences. But I formalized doing a gratitude exercise by thinking of three things that I do every single day that I'm grateful for. And that can be something as simple as stepping outside and it not being raining. Or if it is raining, then I'm I'm grateful that I had my umbrella with me or something, you know, Or that it's not like snowing. That. Or that it's not snowing, exactly. Uh, or that actually we have rain here, whereas in Australia they're begging for rain because of the fires. So I decided to share that on social media every single day to sort of encourage people. It started off as 10 days and then it went to 30 days and then people were just like, carry on, carry on. So it ended up being over 700 days of gratefulness every single day, three days shared with the public. Um, I stopped doing it formally in that way because I felt that there were some personal things that I wanted to talk about and I didn't want to share that on social media, but I do it intermittently. But I'm fascinated with the practice of gratitude and how there is some evidence based about how that, how that cultivates conscientiousness and how that can lead to better aging. Well, so yeah, let's touch down there uh, on gratitude and come back to conscientiousness, if that's all right with you. Um, gratitude is the people who study happiness, the neuroscience of happiness, uh, are um, in uniform agreement that really... The surefire way to be happy is to be grateful for what you have and not focus on what you don't have. And everybody has something to be grateful for. Uh, It's not always easy when uh, bad things happen or you're thwarted or you've just gotten yelled at or cut off in traffic or any of these things. Um, But it does become a mindset. It takes a little bit of practice. Some people uh, are born into a family that encourages and nurtures that practice. Others come to it quite late in life. Fortunately, almost all of us will come to it eventually because gratitude becomes a mindset after the age of 65 and 70, just through normal neurostructural and neurochemical changes to the brain. But from a neuroscientific standpoint, when you're experiencing gratitude, You're not experiencing cravings and uh, jealousy, 
uh, destructive emotions like anger and rage and uh, feeling um, that you need to get revenge. Uh, you're not absorbed by rumination of how come he has this and I don't have it. How come she got the promotion? You know, you, you're grateful for what you have. It in, encourages a calm, peaceful state of mind, and that releases neurochemicals in the brain that actually kickstart the immune system. Uh, and so you can't really point to one thing that is the key uh, just like you can't say, oh, well, there's this one supplement you have to take or this one food you have to eat. It's all part of what I call healthy lifestyle practices. So, it, yeah, it's diet, it's um, exercise and movement, it's sleep, and it's mindset. It's practicing gratitude, which has a neural basis. We've scanned the brains of monks that the Dalai Lama sent over and found that um, they've got some structures that are thicker, uh, that lead to beneficial brain health, other structures that uh, are deactivated, negative self-talk being one of them. Oh, I'm, I'm bad, I'm this, you know, I, I don't deserve this, uh, you know, this bad thing happened to me because it's my fault. That kind of negative self-talk turns off in experienced meditators. Mm -hmm. And so you, you talked a little bit about the neuroanatomy and how that changes throughout aging. One of the things that sticks in my mind through medical school is this shrinking of the hippocampus and... Um, Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. But there are some advantages of changes during aging, as you just alluded to there. Well, shrinkage of the amygdala, for one, the fear center, um, and um, changes in the way some areas connect with others, such as the precuneus. And the relevance to these changes is that they tend to cause a positivity bias, just a fancy way of saying that older adults are more apt to focus on the positive experiences in their lives, even the, their memories. They're more likely to pull out positive than negative memories and more likely to see the positive in people that they meet. Yeah. And one of the things um, also that I'm fascinated by is um, this concept of there being a neurochemical basis behind how we are evolutionary designed to be in communities and social cohesion what is what is that specifically um referring to i think you talked about the putaman uh in the book and 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 i didn't know that there were there was actually some you know neuroanatomical neuro evidence behind that well and it makes sense because we are primates and primates are social species uh not all species are social some are perfectly happy to be alone spiders as far as we know uh, others, uh, there are ma some mammals that are content to be alone. I'm not a biologist, so I couldn't rattle off the list, but primates are a social species, uh, in the way that dogs are a social species, cats, not so much. And, um, it makes sense that we've evolved brain structures that, um, give us a, a, a neurochemical shot of delight and that uh, bring us towards wanting to be with others. Uh, one explanation for this is that when we left the cover of the trees and started headed out on the savanna, early humans had to cooperate and work together in order to fend off land-based predators like lions and tigers and bears. 
oh my yeah <laughs> and uh and flying monkeys and uh we needed to band together to kill mastodons and buffalo to get food because one person couldn't take them down and those early proto-humans who were had a more social brain just by evolutionary accident were the ones who were likely to fare better and so putting that into context of today where there was a st statistic that really shocked me in the book about how there are 200,000 adults in the UK, which is specifically a UK statistic I think you used, um, that haven't had a connection with another human being, like a hug or a phone call for over a month. And that for me was, was really harrowing. Um, how does this manifest, this loneliness, how does it manifest in clinical symptoms and physical symptoms that we see? Well, um, I want to make a distinction between loneliness and solitude because loneliness is the emotion. Solitude is the, the state, right? So, I mean, the, the physical configuration, right? Solitude is you, you aren't around people. Loneliness is an emotion where you feel that you're not connected to others and it's often accompanied by feelings of being underappreciated or misunderstood, um, yearning for contact and you can be lonely in a crowded room you can be lonely in a committed relationship so um, loneliness is not the same as solitude and some people who are in solitude are not lonely perfectly happy not many of us but a small percentage again genetic variation but uh, for most of us uh, who are not you know, that 1% of the population who are hermits by choice, um, loneliness is the number one killer. Uh, it leads to a weakened immune system. Uh, this isn't widely known, but one of the things your immune system does, the NK cells, sort of the James Bond of the immune system, attacking the most difficult cases, many of us are developing tumors all the time. Uh, they go undetected because the NK cells, when functioning properly, recognize them as invaders and eradicate them. Uh, and uh, that's the way it's supposed to work. Of course, we get cancer because some cancer cells have mutated and, and they trick the immune system or they become too much for a compromised immune system. Uh, but yeah, loneliness, number one killer. Mm. Yeah. And it's associated with a whole bunch of different um, biomarkers of disease as well, increased yeah. inflammation levels, IO6. And, right, mm. right, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and that, I think, um, I mean... And maybe that means lonely people should uh, uh, eat more turmeric and ginger, but... <laughs> I think, well, this is where it gets interesting because as a medic and, and as medical professionals, we're inclined to think about disease in a very binary fashion. Uh, someone has inflammation, we can treat that. Let's use some NSAIDs or yes, let's use some food or whatever. But really, A, is just an association and B, it's indicative of a much wider issue which has a root cause which is a lot more multifactorial. So really we have to think of, out of the box of a, how do we actually tackle loneliness if that is the cause of a whole bunch of different conditions or at least in part uh, contributing to um, with some innovative thinking. Um, and, you know, it could be as simple as joining a singing class, as ridiculous as it sounds. <clears throat> and I'm not too sure if this is the same in, in Canada or the US, but we, um, the, the fashionable buzzword right now in general practice is social prescribing, whether it be prescribing uh, your patient to go to do a park run 
and there are park run organizations up and down the country uh, or a walking group that starts at the practice with a few people who are like-minded and you never know what different connections people will make and how that ignites different connections in their brain as well. So that, yes, I'm, I'm very much in favor of that. Book clubs, uh, walking groups, um, they're, they're, volunteering is a good way to meet people. Uh, now, there's some interesting research uh, from my colleague Bard Fredrickson at University of North Carolina. She and I were in graduate school together, uh, both at Stanford at the same time. And um, she finds that um, for people who are lonely or not lonely, the biggest social change you can make or the social change you can make with the biggest impact is to just strike up conversations with strangers. That feeling that you're part of the fabric of society, talking to somebody on the street, uh, talking to somebody you're standing next to in a queue at the grocery store, um, that's a big predictor of health and uh, happiness at any age, and particularly in older ages. And um, concomitant research shows that people who know their neighbors and actually talk to their neighbors in cities and suburbs are much happier and do much better. And um, the fact is my wife and I um, like spending time together. We like spending time with the dog. We are very, we're both neuroscientists. We're very much immersed in the world of ideas. Um, but we've always had dogs. And when we walk the dog, um, it's a very natural way to strike up conversations because you're out on the street. You're not in a particular hurry usually, and you meet other dog owners and, um, and you meet your neighbors. And um, even without, you know, we, there's a lot of people walking in our neighborhood. We live in Los Angeles where the weather's good a lot of the time. So, you know, but half the people are walking dogs, the other half are, you know, uh, holding a script in their hands and trying to <laughs> hand it to somebody. But, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just kidding, but almost. But, you know, we, we strike up conversations with the neighbors, and uh, one of the neighbors has become, you know, a real friend. I mean, we go out with them, we we make it a point to see them, uh, and it's just the random occurrence of us living near them. But living in that kind of an environment, I can say from personal experience, which uh, is usually not relevant to a scientific discussion other than that it puts a story on the existing science, it's really improved our quality of life. And now we say we, we wouldn't imagine ever moving or living anywhere else. Yeah. yeah. As you were talking through the list of things that people should try and be encouraged to do, it just sounded terribly un-British, like, like striking out conversation with people in shopping markets. and. Well, and it's very un-US un urban. It's, it's very frowned upon in Los Angeles and New York. Oh, is it? Um, New Yorkers typically avert their gaze because oh, they're yeah. packed in this city like sardines. Mm. Los Angelinos uh, typically don't talk to each other. But I find that when we do, uh, it's a game changer. Yeah. I've yeah. even started talking to the homeless uh -huh. and to uh, schizophrenics. Mm -hmm. I had an experience with the homeless that really pushed the needle for me. I think, I, I think I've seen you talk about this before. Yeah, it was... When you told that story, it actually made me quite emotional. When... Um, I, I don't know if you want to share it, but... Uh. Well, I, I have a friend named Peter Himmelman. Uh, 
who's an Orthodox Jew, a practicing Jew, we were, when you were talking about Sikh, uh, the Sikh religion, Sikhism, uh, um, the, uh, the emphasis on gratitude resonated with me because I'm of Jewish culture uh, and heritage. And I know that in the Jewish tradition, uh, people who follow the religion, as Peter does, wake up every morning and, uh, and as soon as they wake up, they have a special prayer. Thank you for letting me wake up. I'm, I'm grateful to, to be conscious again. And thank you for giving me a, a night of restful sleep. And then when you go to the bathroom, there's a special prayer. Every time you go to the bathroom, you're grateful that everything works, mm -hmm. that you know nothing's plugged up or yeah. stopped up, this intricate system of tubes mm. and wires and things. Mm. Uh, and so Peter really lives uh, in the way it sounds as you and your family live uh, the best parts of the teaching. Uh, and in this case, it's to love your fellow human, which can be very difficult to do. Um, when I spoke with the Dalai Lama, we talked about this uh, notion attributed to the Buddha uh, and some of the writings that came after that... Um, Along these same lines, uh, you know, you're, a, you're, a, you're a student in this world, uh, and the whole world, everybody in the world are your teachers, and the people that you find the most difficult to get along with are the most important teachers. <laughs> that's, that's where you learn something. Yeah, absolutely. So Peter talks to homeless people, and yeah. he engages with them, and uh, I'll keep this brief, uh, but we were on a subway platform in New York City at 10 at night, and a very unkempt... Uh, malodorous and unappealing homeless person came up towards us and Peter engaged in conversation with him and we had a guitar I had just done a performance uh, with my band at a club and Peter had been in the audience because we had co-written a song together and he was just to cheer me on and um, Peter took out his guitar and he played a song for this fellow and uh, he used the person's name in the song and Peter improvised. It was, it was a wonderful song. And the, the man, well, he heard his name in a song and somebody really engaging with him. He just started smiling and he melted. And Peter started adding lines about, I can see that you are a man. You deserve dignity and respect. But those are things that here you cannot get. And I was in tears. The man, I think, didn't know quite what to make of it, but he was certainly happified. Yeah. And when he left us, his entire bearing was different. He was not stooped over. He was not dragging his feet or shuffling. 35-year-old man was suddenly invigorated like a kid. And I don't know how long that lasted, but it was a gift that Peter gave him. And so... I've been making an effort to stop and talk to homeless people and just find out their story. And it's surprising. I met a woman in, uh, in Seattle in the winter who uh, said she had been uh, living in a rented apartment with her boyfriend. She was a waitress. He was a, a chef. Uh, well, not, not a chef, a cook's assistant. Uh, uh, Fancy word at that cafe for dishwasher. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the restaurant burned down and didn't have insurance. They lost their jobs. Uh, and 
the guy who owned the restaurant also owned the apartment complex they were living in. And um, one uh, thing that happened was they didn't, couldn't pay the rent and he wouldn't let them stay and they became homeless because of that. I heard about another woman in Los Angeles who told me uh, she was living in a place where there was a murder in her apartment building, you know, a kind of skid row apartment. And she and her, her boyfriend decided they did not want to live in an apartment where murders were taking place, but that, that was all they could afford. It was rent controlled. They, could, they couldn't afford to move, so they were on the street. It's incredible the stories that you hear from homeless people. I, I'm, I would say one of the reasons why that story that you told about your friend with a guitar spoke to me because um, it definitely spoke to my shortcomings. You know, I practice gratitude. I'm very grateful for everything. I'd like to think of myself as a compassionate person, but it made me realize, you know, there's so much more you can do still. And it had the same effect on me, uh, although I was inspired by it. Mm. Um, I realized my own shortcomings. Yeah. I do not have the courage and the compassion that Peter has. I could not have done that. And I don't mm. know that I'll ever be able to, but mm. it's something to work toward. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's harder to do that in, in real life, in public scenarios where, you know, even if you are a kind, compassionate person, you still want to be safe as well. I'm really privileged to work in A&E. Uh, ER, uh, as you guys call it in America, and um, we come face to face with a lot of patients who are vulnerable, who are IV drug users, who on the face of it, you would look at and uh, and interact with, and you would say, well, you know, they've brought it on themselves, or they're being disruptive, or they're shouting in the in the A&E room, or, you know, they're being abusive to the staff, etc. And I get that. No one should ever make any sort of um, exceptions for people who act in that manner. However, I've had a couple of experiences over the last couple of years where I've put that to one side, spoken to them one-on-one, -on -one, told the team to go into another room, and the amount of pain and hurt and vulnerability you reveal from just having a conversation and allowing that person to feel empowered, which is exactly what Peter did in that story that you told me, or you told the, the audience, um, it's fascinating because you realize there is so much more to their story than how they are reacting or appearing on the surface. And despite having those interactions, you know, on a daily basis, when you're walking around, it's hard to be compassionate in that way. You know, I don't have a guitar to pull out. I don't have ways in which I can empower people, but there are different things I think we can do beyond just giving someone money. Um, right. Uh, and you know, Peter, Peter's a big, strong guy. So yeah. I'm not uh, for those of you who can't see me. And so I'm the 98 pound weakling, you know, he, 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 he looks like a guy who could take care of himself. So there's a different thing there, but maybe that's just an excuse. Yeah. Now, do you know Robert Sapolsky? Yes. Yeah. Biologist. Uh, yeah. uh, his new book is terrific. I need to read it, actually. He d talks a lot about stress and um, social communities. Yeah, well, that's studied, his, his yeah. speciality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he and I had coffee together a couple of weeks ago. Okay. And um, we've collaborated on research papers, and he's a really interesting thinker. Um, he uh, is spending a lot of his time now in uh, courts testifying about brains and uh, in criminal trials. And he 
he says in case after case, you you look at at, at what happened, and it's sort of inevitable that these things would have happened, that these people would have behaved badly when you sort of look at the whole picture. Um, and so he says, you know, we often talk about free will and having a choice and being able to behave in certain ways. But he, he said, you know, the reality is that genes, uh, culture, and opportunity don't always give you the full freedom that you and I have the luxury of talking about. You and I can choose to talk to a homeless person. We can, to some extent, choose not to be homeless. We're privileged. He told this one story about a trial where uh, a fellow who had been in and out of juvenile detention facilities his whole life, his mother was a prostitute, he never knew his father, his mother was also a drug addict, um, he was taken away from her and put in these facilities, and uh, he was abused in a couple of them, and in others they just took the money. Uh, the foster parents just took the money for themselves and didn't feed him properly, and you know he ends up, uh, you know, uh, with a lot of missed days from school and uh, you know poor diet, can't study well in school. He ends up in uh, jail, and he's been in and out of prison, uh, and he finally gets released from prison on, at one point, and he's 32 years old, and he's got no money, uh, but he somehow is able to find a menial job, uh, and they pay him at the end of the week. And he's got now um, $300 in cash in his hands. So given that background, as Robert tells the story, what's the logical thing that you do? You only have $300, what do you do? Well, you steal a car, <laughs> because this is your life. This is what yeah. people you know do. You yeah. steal a car, um, you, you, uh, or you borrow a friend's car, which is what he did in this case. Um, but I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's amalgamating different stories. But okay, he borrows a friend's car. He's got his $300. Uh, he goes out and he buys a bottle of liquor, of course. Logically, that's what you would do. Uh, and as he's driving around in this car with a bottle of liquor, logically, he sees a prostitute on the street. He picks her up. And um, they're in the, uh, the car, and uh, they're negotiating what her price will be. And he offers her, uh, he shows her, well, you know, I, I, I got this money. And he pulls out the wad of cash. And he says, and I got this bottle of liquor, you know, and you know, most of it's still there. And, you know, maybe I can give you less money. And so logically, what does she do? She's a prostitute. She's 15 years old. She's been on the streets for three years. She takes a knife out, of course, uh, in order to rob him uh, because she thinks she can overpower him. And uh, so, logically, what does he do? He wrestles the knife from, from her and he stabs her. And he pushes her out of the car and leaves her to die in the gutter. Uh, and in her last 30 seconds before she bleeds to death, she calls her 30-year-old mother. She's a 15-year-old prostitute. Her mother's 30. You can do the math. Her mother had her at 15. We find out later the 15-year-old prostitute who's dying was carrying a child. She calls her mother. She says, Mom, I love you. I'm not going to make it. I love you so much. Click. Dead. So now the guy's on trial for, I mean, it's not funny. It's, 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 but I mean, the, it's, it's tragedy, tragedy, but it's I'm nervous laughter on my part here. The guy sort of, to say that he had free will at any point, yes, I guess technically, but given his life and who he was, 
one thing sort of led to the other inevitably, and he's on trial for murder. And um, it, 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 in the U.S., anyway, this is not a conversation we have about what do you do in cases like this. Because uh, among all Western countries, not Malaysia and Singapore, as far as I know, uh, they're, they're particularly punitive. But you know, we, we tend to just throw people in jail and uh, not think about prevention or rehabilitation at all. Well, this is the thing. I think prevention and rehabilitation are the two key points there. And to your point about free will, there are a catalog of things. And this is something you talk a lot about in your book in terms of your environment your, when you're growing up, the genes that you've inherited, the environment that your parents are in as well, because we know a lot about epigenetic changes now as well and the propensity toward psychological issues um, from the state of the parents. Um, it's almost a given that considering the environment which they've grown up and everything that's happened to them, that they will make those choices. So yes, free will has almost been marginalized because you only have a limited things that you can do in that in Limited that repertoire of skills. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I'm flicking through a whole bunch of patients that I've seen in the last 10 years um, in any and outside where this applies in, in maybe not in, a, in, in that extreme example, but in other examples Well, yeah, of course well. they have high blood pressure. Of course yeah. they have diabetes. 100%. How could they not? 100%. It's it, not their fault. And it's a wider conversation that we're beginning to have around obesity because I think it's been, uh, it's still very pervasive, as you said earlier, in medical uh, professionals to discriminate against people who are overweight because we feel that they brought it on themselves. Where in reality, you look at the environment, how on earth are people who are genetically predisposed to, to uh, obesity going to cope when they're given lots of uh, contradictory dietary advice and they're in an environment where there isn't the availability of foods to help them and there are a whole bunch of other things going on as well poor sleep poor stress uh, financial issues I mean so it's, it's a really wider conversation beyond calories in calories out well right and a lot of it is genetic uh, poor sleep patterns uh, I um, all the men in my family had sleep disorders uh, I inherited a sleep disorder uh, and um, that's not my choice. Uh, the, but um, it's more than that. There's a genetic predisposition towards alcoholism or diabetes or thrill-seeking or uh, all these things that... Uh, gen certainly a genetic predisposition towards uh, high blood pressure. Now, on the Twitter sphere, this conversation that you and I are having, and I know this from experience... I've been accused of being a bleeding heart liberal with a political agenda. And um, I know that this idea that criminals are not responsible for their bad acts uh, or that uh, sick people are, are, uh, are responsible for becoming sick, uh, to some right, people on the right side of the political spectrum um, what we're talking about has a political overtone. The, you know, the right would say, well, everybody has, has the choice. Uh, and, and you know, they've just got to buckle down and, and be tough. And um, to me, the, I, I'm not saying what society should do about it. I'm not taking political sides. Like you, I'm just trying to present the uh, evidence from science and from medical clinical experience that these are the realities. Uh, these things are not their fault. Uh, uh, in terms of how you hold criminals accountable, that's a, 
That's a political issue, not a scientific one. In terms of how you treat patients, to some degree, that's a political issue because the NHS and other agencies have to understand that there are some things that are out of a person's control. Mm. And it's interesting that you've had the same experience because when I talk about uh, issues like cancer, for example, or diabetes or obesity, I'm bringing light to the fact that we can prevent them and there is uh, you can prevent yeah. uh, all these different conditions and there you know there is a ton of evidence around that i mean i've done a do my masters in nutritional medicine on the flip side you'll get somebody talking on the twitter sphere about okay well, are you trying to suggest that it's people's fault for getting cancer in the first place if a third of these are all preventable and that's not what we're trying to suggest there it's literally empowering people with information so they can make better choices to prevent and reduce their risks well and in, uh, in my previous book the field guide to lies and statistics i talked about uh, this in that of course you know with healthy practices that we're talking about, let's focus on diet. Uh, almost every one of us can improve our diet and eat a more varied diet, a healthier diet. Um, but it, uh, we're ta when we talk about it preventing cancer, of course, we mean statistically. There are some people who are going to get cancer anyway. All you can do is move the needle. You can tilt the balance in your favor, but uh, you can't prevent cancer or Alzheimer's any more than you can prevent having a comet hit your house. <laughs> <laughs> Switching gears, and that's a nice segue into back to the, the book, which is called Successful Aging in the US. We have a US audience as well. Um, and here it's called The Changing Mind. You, in the second bit, like go into diet, activity, um, sleep. Um, I want to focus a little bit on diet because you're a fan of omega-3, not in supplemental form, but in fish. And tell us a bit about omega-3. We need fat in our diet. Fat is not the enemy of health. We need fat, uh, particularly for brain health, uh, in order to uh, create myelin, the insulating sheath around neurons. And uh, for other reasons, we need fats. The good fats are the ones that are omega-3 fatty acids. Um, when you get them in so-called fatty fish, like salmon and mackerel, uh, uh, the they're coming with a bunch of micronutrients. Um, if you take them in a pill, they're not. And um, I was agnostic about supplements. I have no horse in the race or skin in the game or whatever you say over on the side of the pond. <laughs> skin in the game is, yeah. Uh, I have no bias, but uh, I became convinced after reading hundreds of papers that there's zero evidence that any supplements at all can help us Unless, of course, we have a, a vitamin deficiency. If you're iron deficient or B12 deficient uh, and your doctor has told you so and, and it, you, know, they, you can't address the underlying cause of that, then yes, you should take it as a supplement. And I believe in vitamin D supplementation, for, particularly for people in northern or cloudy yeah. climates or people who are shut in. But you know, all the other ones that people take... Um, there's no evidence that they work, and in the particular case of fish oil and vitamin E, there's a, a mounting body of evidence that they actually raise your risk for certain cancers. And the frustrating part about this is, is that nutrition scientists and biologists don't, and physiologists don't really understand why that is. The current notion is that because you're taking them in isolation from all the different micronutrients that normally accompany them and activate them and facilitate their metabolism. We don't even know, for example, um, 
for sure, and I have this on good authority from people at the at, you know, nutrition scientists and people at the National Institutes of Health, we don't even know that eating blueberries or acai berries or taking antioxidants in food form actually increases antioxidant levels in the blood. We know that it's good to have high levels of antioxidant in the blood. Uh, they reduce inflammation. They clean out senescent cells. They, they do a lot of cellular housekeeping work. But we don't know that dietary sources of antioxidants are good, and we don't know if they're better in food than in supplements. Complete unknown. Yeah. And th this is quite interesting because uh, I think we like in science to reduce things to, okay, I'm eating blueberries because it's got antioxidants. And we're in, in reality, you know, there's an orchestra of different micronutrients there that may be providing benefits in a multitude of different ways. You know, there's different fibers, you know, in an onion and not just eating it for the allicin content or the different phytochemicals. You're getting prebiotic fibers that might be good specifically for aging because we have an aging microbiota that loses its diversity over time. Absolutely. I'm a big fan, since you brought it up, of probiotics. Oh, really? Great. Tell us a bit more about the probiotics because I, I, I'm aware that, you know, um, as we age, we, we do lose diversity. And so there might be a rationale for, for taking probiotics. Well, so the gut microbiome... Uh, is responsible for a lot of things. It makes 95% of the serotonin that ends up in your brain, uh, which is a mood-elevating and stabilizing neurochemical. It's, uh, it's responsible for helping your immune system function properly. Uh, it, it's really a marvelous system. But yes, we lose some diversity. Anytime you take an antibiotic, you're destroying some good, uh, good uh, bacteria. And... Um, I mean, it, it, having a healthy gut is good for uh, digestion, for um, uh, what's a nice word for uh, regularity? <laughs> you can say pooping. <laughs> yeah, for regularity, yeah. Regular, yeah, regular bowel evacuation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're pretty uh, literal here. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's good for brain health. Uh -huh. uh, increasingly being shown that having a... a healthy microbiome is good for brain health. Um, fecal transplants, in which you take the fecal material from somebody with a healthy microbiome and implant it in someone who does not have a healthy microbiome, are turning out to be uh, effective and uh, with minimal symptoms if done properly. Uh, there's the disgust factor with those, and of course, this is not something you want to try at home on yeah. your own. Yeah. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, there's a few YouTube videos out there just so people are aware <laughs> of, of like how to do it yourself. Are the, there really? Yeah, yeah, which I obviously don't recommend. No, um, but I you want to be careful about anyone that's teaching you the basics of using a basting, but yeah, it's, it's pretty, um, pretty no, gruesome. No, and, and if you are gonna do it at home, make sure there's not a fan nearby. Oh, <laughs> because if the material hits the fan. <laughs> but um, the, no, what I, I'm in favor of is, is micro, uh, microbiotic, probiotic uh, restoration. And the frustrating thing here is that although there are lots and lots of pills and capsules being sold and things that you have to refrigerate and they can be terribly expensive, um, almost none of them actually work because they don't survive the harsh, acidic environment of the stomach. I only was able to identify two that have scientific research behind them. 
I list them in the book. One of them actually is a pill. The pill needs to be refrigerated. The other is a, a liquid suspension, and that one is called Simprove. I don't own any stock in the company. I don't know anybody who works for the company. Uh, they're not friends of mine, <laughs> but it's spelled S-Y-M-P-R-O-V-E. Mm -hmm. It's made here in the UK. Yeah, it is, yeah. And as soon as I knew I was... So as soon as I heard about it, I bought a 12-week supply. It's a 12-week program. Uh, and what you do is you drink a little bit of this fluid, about a third of a cup, um, first thing in the morning before you've had anything to drink or eat. You wait 10 minutes, and then you need to seed it. You need to uh, plant uh, something uh, that will get it activated, and that usually would be fruits, any kind of fruit, to give the, uh, those new probiotics something to process, to feed on. And then you can eat a regular meal and you do whatever you want. And after the 12-week program, which I found uh, quite effective at um, just making me feel healthier overall. I, I, I can't put a finger on it, but I felt healthier. I lost a little bit of weight. I was less susceptible to colds and things. Uh, you're supposed to do a tune-up, and there's not much research on how often you should do it. But when I knew I was coming over to here, I ordered some on Amazon. I had it sent to my hotel. Oh, nice. Okay. And so I got a two-week supply. I'm uh -huh. here for two weeks. But, you know, I was able to import it to the States also. Yeah. Um, and uh, the other one, I bought the, the other one, I forget the name of it. I bought the pills. And the weird thing about, micro, about probiotics is they're different formulations of different yeah. billions of different bacteria. I took the pill for a few days, and I just felt in a sour mood. I did not feel good. So I'm sure that it works for some people, but for my type, the Simprove is the one. And maybe for others, it's the pill. Yeah, you know, it, I, I, this whole area is absolutely fascinating, very much in its infancy, despite the claims that people will make based on limited research. Um, and that's the fault of a lot of the manufacturers of these different pills. And, and um, there's other liquid-based and uh, probiotics as well. But I think there's definitely a lot to learn ar around how we can effectively match different types of probiotic um, uh, or different taxa of bacteria. Oh, to your genome. To the genome, And yes. your microbiome. And your current microbiota. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I know uh, John Krein's doing a lot of this work yeah. uh, in yes. Ireland. Yeah. Yes. Um, I spoke to him too. I actually met one of his research team. Oh, you spoke to him for the, for yeah, the book, book, did you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You did talk about yeah. it. Yeah. The, the whole rise of psychobiotics and stuff. Yeah. Which I think is a very interesting future. Um, but at the moment... There's limited evidence for, I think, um, specific types for different people. Um, so that, that was my understanding. What do you yeah. recommend to your patients? So I think, as a rule of thumb, probiotics are generally safe and potentially effective. But there isn't uh, a guideline in the NHS or NICE, National Institute of Clinical Excellence, that we give probiotics with antibiotics. But if it was me, and this is what I tell patients, I would take probiotics during and after a course of antibiotics at least uh, with a high fiber diet and looking after other uh, mechanisms that can improve your microbiota. So sleep and uh, a little bit of exercise as well if you're well enough. Obviously, if you're taking antibiotics, you're probably going to be that well. Um, taking bouts of probiotics, I haven't done that myself yet. Well, but you're I, young. <laughs> but I don't... I, don't think it's um, unsafe to do so and experiment with different types actually 
Um, I tend to get my probiotics from food. So I'll have like kimchi, sauerkraut, pickles. Yes, my wife and I too. We, we've been eating more pickles. I don't particularly care for kimchi, but we eat it now and then. <laughs> yeah. We have sauerkraut and I, I drink kefir every morning. Yeah. Kefir. Kefir, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really popular drink here now, actually. Um, I did notice on your dietary guidelines for the show, you said, I'll eat protein, but I won't have gizzards, brain, uh, offal. I don't know whose kitchen you thought you were coming to. <laughs> well, it, you know, I lived in Quebec for a long oh, time. Oh, really? Yeah, and, yeah. You know, yeah. They, they serve brains and organs and all yeah. kinds of, and slippery things like, <laughs> you know, snails and... Now we'll keep it pretty uh, pretty standard here. It's not that exploratory. So, in terms of um, a successful day in aging, what does that what does that look like for you if you're if you're doing this at the moment, or what would you recommend as a successful day? Yeah, well, I, for aging I, I, well? I, I think everybody's different, mm. and everybody has to find their own way. There's mm. no one thing that works for everybody. Just like there's no one diet or one form of therapy or mm. meditation or one religion. It's everybody has to find their own way. Mm. Um, to me, a day, a single day of successful aging is you wake up after eight or nine hours of uninterrupted sleep. Mm. You wake up at the same time uh, that you've been waking up every morning for the past few weeks. Um, you're filled with excitement for what the day has because you're not stressed out or carrying resentments from the previous day. You're not hung over. Um, you wake up t- uh, in... Uh, a living space with somebody you care about there, Uh, maybe a pet. You have a a good meal of a variety of foods uh, and um, you walk after each meal, just minimal minimal exercise, even just to walk around the block or moving around doing some, uh, if if the weather's bad, doing some uh, walking in place or going upstairs just to help of the digestive system and the insulin signaling, uh, you, uh, you're engaged with some sort of meaningful activity, whether it's paid or not, that makes you feel valued and helps you to feel you're contributing to others in some way. Uh, you do that as a doctor. I, I like to think that I do that as an educator. Very um, much so. Some of my students may disagree, but, <laughs> uh, then, uh, you know, some people have one more meal in the day. Some don't. They have two or they have none. It's not about that, uh, but it's about when you do eat, eating a variety of foods, more fiber and more plants than we usually do, um, avoiding refined sugar, more whole grains, um, avoiding processed foods, which doesn't mean, look, I had a bag of ch- potato chips last night. You, you have to have fun once yeah, in a while. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, crisps, you call them here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... Uh, for many of us, uh, successful aging, healthy aging, is a nap at some point. A 15-minute nap in the afternoon can be the equivalent of an hour and a half extra sleep the night before. Uh, at some point during the day, in addition to walking after meals, maybe you do a 20- or 30-minute walk in nature, if you can, on an uneven surface and have to navigate that and keep your balance and your sense of uh, orientation and um, uh, muscle coordination. Um, You find some time during the day to do something that's purely pleasurable. Making love, listening to music, uh, having a good meal, 
talking to friends. Uh, you try to do something new, maybe not every day, but once a week, do something you've never done before or something that you like doing, but in a new way or in a new restaurant, something like that. Meet a new person, talk to a new person. That, that, that's all of it. Yeah, it seems like you, your parents were a big inspiration to uh, writing the book itself. And then in the end, they were doing everything right anyway. So <laughs> it was just reaffirming what, what they were doing, right? Well, right. So we, uh, what, <laughs> what, you're, what Dr. Rupi is alluding to is that uh, I, one of the reasons I set off to collect the information in the book is that my parents turned 80 and I wanted to give them some advice. <laughs> They're now 85 and 87, and they don't need the advice. They're doing everything intuitively that's in yeah, the book. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. And um, They became vegetarians 35 years ago. Oh, did ago, they? Which isn't necessarily something I, I recommend strongly, yeah, but it's yeah. worked for them. Wow, that's pretty. What was, the, what was the trigger for them to turn vegetarian? I, I don't know. Oh. They, they didn't say. They, just, they, they heard that cholesterol was bad yeah. and that meat was a source of cholesterol. It was really not scientific. And yeah, that was that. Yeah. And your mother is writing plays now? Yeah, she's writing plays and painting things that she just started at 80. That's incredible. Yeah. I'd love to like, you know, start something new uh, every 20 or 30 years, you know, just keeping everything fresh. Have you started anything new? Because you're a musician. You've done a whole bunch of different things in your career. I started... Two things new after after realizing the importance of of putting yourself outside your comfort zone. one was that, uh, and this is rather mundane, but I started doing resistance training okay. because I read and learned about sarcopenia. Mm. Maybe you're better equipped to explain that. Yeah, sure. So me. sarcopenia is essentially where you lose a muscle, a lean muscle mass, um, and you replace it essentially with fatty tissue. It's associated with high inflammation levels, and it's one of the reasons why um, it, well, it's definitely a contributing factor to different chronic lifestyle-related illnesses uh, associated with meta-inflammation. And um, one of the reasons why we really fear when uh, people from an older population have um, a falls and they, they break their bones and stuff, um, it's one of the contributing factors. So I started practicing uh, resistance training and uh-huh. I've got a, a, a network of like 12 machines I use at the gym. Uh-huh. I go around and, and just try to keep my muscles in shape. It's, I'm not trying to build up yeah, bulk, yeah. I'm just trying to... I'm a big advocate for, for resistance training for, for people of all ages. I think it's fantastic. Jane Fonda is doing it, age yeah, 81. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, you know, appropriate for your, your own uh, life stage and mm. body type. Mm. Um, the other thing is, uh, you, you mentioned I've been a musician all my life. Uh, I'd also been writing songs all my life, but not playing them for others. I just wrote them for myself. Okay. Um, in a lifetime of being a musician and performing, I've heard a lot of bad songs <laughs> and I've heard a lot of bad singers. And the thought of doing it badly really terrified me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I enjoy writing songs and singing them to myself and to my dog. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, and I never really had studied singing. I was one of the kids who they told to just mouth the words. Right, right. In school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so a few years ago, I decided to take my songwriting and singing more seriously because it was so far outside my comfort zone. And I got some help in, uh, I, got, I took voice lessons. I worked with a vocal coach uh, and I 
I wouldn't say I took songwriting lessons so much as I went to mentors mm. who told me how to approach my songwriting. In a couple of cases, they said, oh, change this word. Mm. Or, you know, you need to have a different section now. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's too much of the same or whatever. Uh, but it wasn't like co-writing. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't like a teacher redlining stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, in my case, my uh, songwriting mentors were Rodney Crowell uh-huh. and uh, Joni Mitchell uh-huh. and Paul Simon. Right. And then my... <laughs> Some pretty good coaches there. <laughs> uh, my singing teacher was Gerilyn Glass, who was a Broadway singer who had performed with Rex, Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady. Okay. Also an opera singer. Uh, and then once I got the fundamentals from her, I felt I needed to learn how to express my songs uh, in a way that would connect emotionally with an audience. Mm. And I didn't know how to do that. I'm a scientist. And Rodney Crowell told me that when I, he, when we got to the point where Rodney, who's a very, has a very high bar and is a tough critic of songwriting. Uh-huh. He's, he's one of the great American songwriters alive today. Uh-huh. All my songwriter, most of my friends are songwriters, and most of them hold him in the highest regard. Gotcha. Uh, and Rodney, at some point, said, "Yeah, these songs are good." He said, "But you sound like a scientist singing them." <laughs> uh, and then I have a friend, Michael Brook, a film composer and guitarist, uh, and he said, "Yeah, you, you got to take acting lessons or something because you know you just it's this isn't working." So I went to Joni. Joni Mitchell, uh-huh. and I said, you know, I, people are telling me that I, I'm not connecting with my voice. And she worked very closely with me, uh, kind of like surgery. Really? Looking right. at individual syllables and vowels and um, really helping me to gain a system for how to approach uh-huh. singing. And I worked at it for a couple of years. Um, it was all very much out of my comfort zone, of mm. course. I'm used to being in the background, mm. in the studio, uh, where I can't be seen. Or on a stage, you know, not in front of the band, but in the back mm. as the bass player. Yeah. Or, uh, so, um, or guitarist or saxophone player in the yeah. horn section, you know, any of those things which I've done. So um, I put out, I, I went out and I started performing uh-huh. as the front person. Wow. I did a tour of 12 cities with a singer-songwriter friend named Tom Brosseau. When was that? Uh, 2017. Just wow. the two of us, guitar uh-huh. and voice, each of us on the stage at the same time. We traded back and forth. And then after Tom and I went out, I did a... And one of the shows was actually in Los Angeles, and Joni Mitchell came and sat in the front row <laughs> and cheered us on. And she became a fan of Tom's music then. Nice. There were a lot of people in that audience. Uh, Madeline Peru, uh, Don Was... Uh-huh. Uh, Grammy-winning producer Larry Klein, Grammy-winning producer of Sean Colvin and Joni Mitchell and others. Wow. Um, and uh, Stephen Stills. I mean, it was, it was really... That's incredible. It was something. <laughs> and then I put out a record just six weeks ago. Really? What's it called? It's called Turnaround. Turnaround. And what's the band name? What is it under? Is it... Daniel Everton. Daniel Everton. No way. I'm totally out of my comfort zone. Oh, I'm, my God. If you don't like it, I'm responsible. I've got to take the heat. Can we use the music in this podcast? Absolutely. Oh, great. 
Yeah, yeah it's you, on. You uh, heard it here. So <laughs> we can use it. It's on all the usual outlets. So Amazing. Google Play, Apple Music, Spotify. What's the? What do you do? You look at the comments, or have you have you got some feedback from people outside of your? Friendship zone, that will be a little bit. I've gotten a little bit of feedback um, in that uh, I didn't know you could look at comments on Spotify. And these uh, no, but like if it's been shared on like um, uh, SoundCloud or something like that. Oh, sometimes. yeah, I, I, I haven't looked. Okay, great. Uh, but um, We'll look at the comments on the, at the yeah, end of the podcast yeah, and ask people to no, comment it's, it's, on your it's, it's 12 original songs. Well, I don't know if they're original, but 12 songs that I wrote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to decide if they sound original or not. Uh, and I sing them, and uh, I had some friends help out with the instruments. My friend Elliot Randall, who was a founding member of Steely Dan, played the guitar solo on one, and I had uh, Victor Wooten, great bass player, play on a tune. Another friend of mine, Steve Bailey, who's played bass with Jethro Tull, Willie Nelson, and um, Dizzy Gillespie plays on one tune. Incredible. Uh, Really nice collection of friends helping out. That's amazing. And then um, I heard from Graham Nash, Crosby, Stills and Nash and the Hollies, uh-huh. and from Donald Fagan of Steely Dan, uh, from Renee Fleming, the great Broadway and opera singer uh, in the United States, yeah. uh, that they really liked it. Brilliant. And so, wow, that was... Amazing. That was something. Wow. Well, I can't wait to listen to that. It's, uh, it's, uh, that's news to me. I had no idea that you just put out some music. So, you know, you're really practicing what you're preaching you know, well i'm trying to and I, I didn't i'm not putting it out to uh to monitor no of course so yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I'm not really promoting it but yeah i do like it when people hear it and i i've gotten some emails from people who uh-huh. said uh i found this and i really liked it or you know a couple of uh podcasters yeah. and radio and radio uh hosts said they wanted to interview me about it Epic. cbc radio in canada okay. uh, played one of the songs Wow. So, yeah, the reception's been more positive than... That's great. You could be pivoting your career into rock star. You know, I would be delighted to, to keep on making music and have people enjoying it. Yeah, that's amazing. That's great. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Daniel Everton. You can check out all the links and some of the links to the uh, research studies as well that we discussed on the show notes page of the doctorskitchen.com forward slash podcasts. Do check out the book as well. It's a brilliant read and I will catch you here next week. Make sure you give us a five-star review. Catch you then. Catch you then.